This is not the media. This is hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell today on This is Hell. We are continuing our ongoing weekly series of interviews every Thursday with correspondents, contributors, past guests, and who knows, maybe some people who have never been on our show before to find out what the global coronavirus pandemic is like where they are, what's happening in their community, and within their own lives during this age of the virus. We started this segment back in March when we spoke with our man in San Juan, Dave Buchan, who told us how Puerto Rico is coping with the pandemic after being hit by an earthquake and still recovering from hurricanes that made waste to the island back in 2018. Then we talked to our correspondent in Budapest, Todd Williams, who described a Hungary, still under the authoritarian rule of Prime Minister Viktor Orban, and how his power has expanded during the virus. But don't forget, Orban's unchallenged power was growing by leaps and strides long before the virus. The next week, we talked to the award-winning video game developer of the game, Thumper, Mark Fleury, who's been giving us some morning calm from Seoul, South Korea, since at least 2015. Mark told us how and why South Korea responded far better than the U.S. and why he is so concerned for the people back here in the States because he doesn't have much faith in the self-discipline of our society in the U.S. to actually adhere to safety protocols that could save their lives. And Mark was proven correct. Next, we went down to Brazil to hear from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, editor and correspondent Brian Meir. Brian told us how the government of Jair Bolsonaro has reacted to the crisis, and if you guessed that a far-right leader would deny the actual existence of the virus, then deny its lethality, you guessed correctly. Then last week we spoke with writer and founder of the website New Bloom, Brian Hugh, who reported from Taiwan, as he has done several times on our show in the past. Brian explained exactly how the virus could lead to China and the U.S. starting World War Freaking Three. So yeah, our reports are a bit different than what you are getting anywhere else on COVID-19. This week we go to Mexico City where we find journalist Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico and advisor to Just Associates. Laura is also our correspondent in Mexico. You can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura Carlson, that's S-E-N, followed by the letter C, Laura Carlson C. Find out more about Laura's work at americas.org. The last time Laura was on our show was back in October 2018 when we discussed NAFTA's renegotiation and her commentary, Trump and Mexico's next president are on honeymoon, but it won't last. You can find many of our discussions with Laura at our website, thisishell.com, and of course we'll wrap up this week, as we do most weeks, with a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff shares the final part of The Good Doctor, his four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, anything new by you? I don't want to get her in trouble, but uh, my wife made a guacamole the other day, mm-hmm. and I could only be described as racist. <laughs> What made it racist? The amount of raw garlic she put in there. She owes a lot of people an apology. It was, <laughs> it was one of the worst things I've ever tried in my life. Really? Yeah, it was a nightmare. I, this is why I do 90% of the cooking. Sometimes I like eating raw garlic. Uh, well, I got some guacamole for you. <laughs> if that's all you want to taste is some uh, raw garlic. Uh, 
was a travesty, man. Uh, I was getting really bummed yesterday because I was reminded of how I was really excited about 2020 and how we would be doing shows on weekdays and how I would suddenly have weekends back for the first time in 23 years and I could go out with my girlfriend on weekends, go to the movies, go visit friends, be sociable for the first time in 23 years. Uh, so all we gotta do is go back to the four-hour Saturday schedule. Oh, speaking of which, we hey, we might be back on the radio. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, so tune in if you uh, like to listen to the radio at uh, nine o'clock a.m. on WNUR and uh, we, on Saturday morning. On Saturday morning, we might show up there. I don't know. I put something in a folder. I uh, turned on uh, WNUR last Saturday morning, and uh, they were playing that one show of ours where it's dead air for two and a half hours. That was really a great show that we did. I don't think that was us. I think that was the station. This week's question mail is, what household item are you injecting or ingesting to fight the coronavirus? What household item are you putting in your body to fight the coronavirus? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor ads with the words, This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex will have... And Alex has more of as some of your answers right now. Alex, I don't know why that wasn't in there. Uh, what household items are you putting in your body to cure COVID-19? What household items are you putting in your body to cure COVID-19? Via Twitter, Tara D says, Lysol, but only because I thought it converts to lysergic acid diethylide. <laughs> hey, Coca-Cola got its name from coca leaves, so you do the math. <laughs> Hale says, I was researching homemade soap-making tutorials, but that craps a lot of work. My galaxy brain idea is a simple shot of lye each day with my coffee. Hmm. Brian D says, Nutella. Fred B says, bullets. The invisible enemy can't hide from me. (laughs) What household item are you putting in your body to cure COVID-19? Ben H says, tap water from Flint. Indoor cat says, steel wool. UMT says, I took up chain smoking because someone on a podcast said nicotine reduces your chances of of contracting coronavirus. Drew H says tequila. Dr. E.G. says, I've been hard at work on a Lysol vape system and Agent Orange for the lungs in the war against the brilliant germ. (laughs) What household item are you putting in your body to cure COVID-19? Paul says, Death Death Wish 3 on DVD. (laughs) (laughs) A septic technique says, "I I, I got an IV of tanning oil greasing up my innards. Hoping to get some UV radiation in there. <laughs> uh, you'll appreciate this name, Chuck. Uh, Nomar Garcia Paragraph says, <laughs> says Murphy's Oil Soap. Jack W. says, clothing, now old, from an emperor. And finally, D.S. Massar says, all I could find at the store was that natural hardwood floor cleaner, bubble bath, and a bona enemy, enema for me. Did you, you know, these uh, people are playing video games and showing them on like ESPN. Uh, you've seen this, right? Like w, like uh, NBA 2K, they have a Madden one, they have a one where it's Formula One racing, they have one that's NASCAR racing. I find it hilarious that what was the second day of them having NASCAR drivers drive, play in this game virtually on TV. I think it was the second day one of them used the N-word. <laughs> I thought that that was a little bit long. I video, thought games was... <laughs> are, video games are really realistic now. <laughs> so, and apparently, so are... Uh, NASCAR drivers. They're really keeping it very real, unfortunately. Uh, Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Mel following our guest. Again, email us your answers to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is Hell, the best radio show, podcast, live stream, whatever this is your best friend has never heard of. In these uncertain and unprecedented times, 
is how nearly every TV or radio or online online ad starts nowadays as we live and suffer and die under the virus in these uncertain and unprecedented times as opposed to some pre-virus normal that's being shoved down our throats as if it is something we which we sh- would actually want to recapture relive the implication is that time was certain and filled with precedent as if it was an adequate guide for our future, which doesn't make any sense when in that normal we were giving ourselves absolutely no future as year after year we kept burning more climate change causing fossil fuels than ever, more coal than ever, more oil than ever, more gas than ever. So I'm not exactly sure how that past of destroying our planet should guide our future should be any kind of precedent that we should apply moving forward. When it comes to certainty, exactly how certain were those pre-virus times of normal that we are all being browbeaten into believing we want to go back to and like. Those were the times of precarity when the media was reporting gleefully that our lives were constantly being joyously disrupted by the latest genius Silicon Valley app that either takes our jobs away, eliminates them entirely, or drives wages down so far that what was once a livelihood is now nothing but a side hustle, which sounds so cool. In these uncertain and unprecedented times when people desperately want to recreate a past, which is an act that is unachievable, no matter how many times we are told things can be great again, just like they were great in the past, which they never were. Things were only great in the past in our dreams, our fantasies, and definitely not in the reality of that lived past. Never before have we had humanity looking backward for their future. If only it could be like it used to be. Sounds frighteningly like Make America Great Again and even well-intended policies grounded in the past like the Green New Deal. The past is dead. It dies every second of every day. That past cannot be resurrected. It can be examined, reconsidered, given life through a thorough reading and analysis. It can be better understood so we can learn from the past and move forward. Even if we were able to recreate that past, it wouldn't be the past. It would be what the future believes the past was like. And they never get it quite right. If they did get it right, every movie about ancient or medieval times, every western, all the actors would be filthy, foul, disgusting, and if they are in cities walking in human waste regularly, because that's how disgusting it really was, but spending that much of your film's budget on fake piles of shit and rivers of piss probably is not going to make the producer happy. Besides, the awful sight of it may not play well for today's more hygienic sensibilities. Also, those movies would have a lot of really, really horrible physical abuse and racism. But that dirtiest of the past, it's not so secret, secret that, yeah, things were freaking deplorable. All that gets erased when imagining our fantastic past. We revel in what we think it was like, how we remember it. We wax nostalgic and wallow in that nostalgia until we believe our repackaged view of the past was what it was really like back then instead of that actual lived reality. The old normal that the virus forced us to abandon sucked. Let me remind you, we were being told we could not afford universal health care in the U.S., we could not afford to forgive student loans, we could not afford to give free in-state tuition to local college-bound students, we were told we could not afford the Green Deal, Green New Deal that would save the planet. We were told it was too expensive to convert to non-fossil fuels like solar and wind, and the only way we could get to those alternative forms of power was to have a transition fuel of 
natural gas, which was being fracked out of the earth in a process that appears even more destructive than drilling for oil. Yet suddenly, we have all this money to give away. You get $1,200, and you get $1,200, and you get extra unemployment. <clears throat> you know that unemployment that before the virus we said we couldn't afford. And tens of millions of dollars goes to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and Shake Shack and the Los Angeles Lakers, who all gave their money back, but who knows how many more multi-million, if not billion-dollar corporations were suddenly under the, under the virus being given money that we were told pre-virus by both Republicans and Democrats alike simply wasn't there. Austerity was a scam meant to keep the 99% in line and under control because without a safety net, they'll all be forced to be good little workers. And if they attempt to organize, we'll fire them all and move where more desperate and vulnerable workers will gladly take the few scraps we feed them as they race for the bottom, bottom when it comes to expenses and the rich speed to the top when it comes to hoarding all the profits for themselves. In these uncertain and unprecedented times, but for whom? Things go on as they always have for the homeless, for those in deep poverty, for those who already had very little access to food or running water. Times for them are very certain, very precedented, and the same as always. In these uncertain and unprecedented times, unless you kind of figured this was the direction the world was going with increased pandemics over the past 10 years that epidemiologists said was likely due to climate change. In these uncertain and unprecedented times, we should be asking whose future is the most uncertain, whose life going forward will be the most unprecedented, because the 1% want that uncertainty and unprecedented life to continue to be ours while their lives remain very certain and precedented, unchanged as inequality continues to grow and their wealth expands even beyond theirs and our wildest dreams. Also, they can have generational wealth, allowing generations of their family not to actually work, but to sit back, invest, and watch the world burn from the lap of luxury they call their homes. In these uncertain and unprecedented times, if we do nothing but look backwards to recapture some lost past normal, a normal filled with suffering and innovating new ways of suffering every day, instead of moving forward into the future of a world changed, so things like pandemics and climate change are no longer existential threats to humanity, then when we get back to that fictional normal that is imposed upon us, forcing to live in some make-believe and brutal normal, we will definitely find ourselves saying, yes, this is hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, we continue our series of reports from our correspondents around the world. This time we will hear what's happening in Mexico during the moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin shares the final part of The Good Doctor, his four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. And more of your answers to this week's question from Al, as well as announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for our subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. The coronavirus hit Mexico a bit later than it arrived here on the shores of the United States or in Europe. So the government's response was also, sensibly, a bit late. But it was also a bit garbled. It felt a bit short. And despite Mexico having dealt with being the epicenter of the 2009 swine flu outbreak, the reaction, reaction has been a bit 
problematic, which can be expected in a country where over 40% live in poverty. Here to continue our series of reports on what is happening around the world with COVID-19, journalist and TV host Laura Carlson is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. Laura, welcome back to This Is Hell. Why, thanks. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. The last time Laura was on was far too long ago, so I have to send you an apology. Uh, <laughs> Laura was on our show way back in October of 2018 when we discussed NAFTA's renegotiation and her commentary, Trump and Mexico's next president are on honeymoon, but it won't last. You can find many of our discussions with Laura at thisishell.com, and you can find out more about Laura's work at americas.org, and you can follow her on Twitter at Laura Carlson and then the letter C. So the first question we've been asking correspondents, contributors, past guests these past few Thursdays, Laura, is while getting these reports from all over the world on what's happening when they're where they are with the outbreak. First question has always been, how are you? How are you feeling? How are you feeling? I'm feeling fine. Thank you. Um, We are sheltering in a house on the outskirts of Mexico City. My daughter is a health worker at a public hospital. She's a doctor and she was sent home for in quarantine for exposure to the virus a couple weeks ago and her test recently came out positive. So far she hasn't had um, major symptoms, but uh, I couldn't be more aware of the risks and of the bravery of health workers during this crisis than I am right now with the constant concern for her health and for uh, the questions about how you how how you treat those people, how you reintegrate them. Eventually, as you mentioned, in Mexico, we're just about to go into the peak period of COVID-19. Um, and it's unclear, you know, when or how she she'll go back on the job. So uh, so it's a stressful time, but at the same time, learning a lot of lessons about remaking life, about what really matters, and uh, following the policy debates, particularly here in Mexico. So uh, that's amazing that your uh, daughter's a doctor. I didn't know that. From her perspective, what is what has she told you about what it's like in Mexico's hospitals? Are they having the same issues when it comes to medical supplies that we're having here in the United States? Yes, when she left again, there was we were just beginning to see a, a major influx of cases, and we'll anticipate that that will go up now. <laughs> Uh, there, the, the Mexican government's reaction was late, as you mentioned. In the U.S. mainstream press, it's been described as kind of nonchalant. And it's reasonable that this would be the description given to it because of the personal behavior of the president. He was continuing to go on tour on the weekends, to go into communities, to shake hands, even to give the traditional kiss on the cheek, even at a time when across the world it was well known that social distancing was a response to this. Um, he also he also used like exhibited amulets and you know and religious figures and said, "Well, I'm protected by this," which of course everyone from any kind of a scientific or policy perspective considered 
considered ridiculous. So as a personal example, um, it was not an adequate response. But as a policy example, they've been very aware of this. They've been aware of this and they've been preparing in some, in many senses since January for what was going to happen to Mexico. In the hospitals, what we're seeing is uh, there's still a scrambling to get organized, to get the types of equipment that they need, particularly the ventilators. Mexico has made some re recent purchases from China. They have some ventilators coming in from the United States, and their uh, universities are working on manufacturing uh, ventilators as well to be able to meet that need and working on treatments. So there's a scrambling going on, in as in all countries, it, w it wasn't really expected, and it came at uh, uh, an interesting moment, to say the least, because of the transformation that Mexico is going through. We have hospitals that are dedicated to COVID-19. We have hospitals where, like where my daughter was, that are, are mixed hospitals. So what happened, for example, was that a patient came in presenting with something other than COVID symptoms, and it was later found out that, uh, that he indeed had coronavirus, which meant that people who had not been designated were, were exposed un unknowingly at a certain time. This is very common um, in, I think, probably in the whole world, and it certainly happened here in hospitals that receive all kinds of patients. Uh, and so, so right up to now, they're trying to co coordinate the hospital, the network of hospitals. They've added a large number of hospitals uh, that ha that are being run by the armed forces for reasons that I, for one, cannot fathom. But that's the way it's organized. Uh, and um, so far, it seems to be under control. But everyone's waiting for these next next couple of weeks. So what explains to you that militarized response? There's so much that you just said that I want to follow up on. So, uh, yeah. so what explain what explains to you why they are doing that militarized approach? Is the I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what explains that to you? Well, I think that it has to do with the way in which uh, the president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has been courting the armed forces since he took office. So there's a deep political explanation, in my opinion, to giving the armed forces such a primary role in a health in a health crisis, in which, by logic anyway, one would think that it, that reinforcing the civilian structures would be the better plan, because it allows you to have an infrastructure that you can continue with and that's available in a country that has, has historically and still has um, a completely insufficient health infrastructure, and especially after so many years of neoliberalism in which the public health system has been purposely dismantled. So what is the political motivation of courting the armed forces, of, of, of giving them such a large role here? Essentially is that uh, Lopez Obrador is aware of the power of the capitalist opposition to his presidency, uh, particularly the national and international business class, which now are, of course, completely and totally linked. They have taken advantage of the COVID-19 crisis to attack 
in many, many ways, a major television station. To give you an example, it's a commercial television station. They actually came out on their primetime news program and said verbatim, do not pay any attention to what the president's health advisor tells you to do. So it's it's really gotten to the point of outright subversion on the part of of some of the business class as they see this as an opportunity to attack the Lopez Obrador government. So I think that he he saw the example of Bolivia with the with the coup d'état and the armed forces turning against Evo Morales, and he has seen uh, the kinds of economic and political structures that have built up that are are mounting against his government and has been very close to keep has been very careful to keep the armed forces close i think that that is again what we're seeing in this crisis as well of course there's been effort to build up and they have built up the civilian structures within the health system they were right in the middle of this conversion to toward more universal health care and to really revamping almost every aspect of the health service and, and in general of public services. So it's an incredible challenge for a government who thought that its major challenge was going to be to bring about uh, reforms within within the country that were going to be very difficult on their own because of these resistances from invested interests and then had to face this uh, pandemic as well. So do you think that this is going to sidetrack all of the transformations that AMLO was hoping that he could put in place? And, and, when, and when you were mentioned, just to answer that, I guess for now, will this, will this sidetrack and sideline all of his projects that he had hoped he could put in place? No, it'll make it more difficult. Well, at least they will continue because that's the other part I wanted to ask you about is the response and the environment within which it took place. It took place in a country that has far more poverty than we have here in the United States. How does a response differ in a country that has 50 million people living in poverty? Yeah, that's absolutely essential to understanding. And that's why I'm critical of this whole line of focusing on the personalistic response of Lopez Obrador that you see in the mainstream press that has traditionally been hostile, especially Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, to the Lopez Obrador government even before he was elected. Because although that is true in terms of his personal behavior, what they were doing was a very conscious strategy. And the conscious strategy was, okay, we're going to leave the economy, the society open as long as we can, calculating that we're behind the curve, just as the United States was a little behind Europe, Mexico is a little behind the United States in terms of exposure. We're going to leave it open as long as we can. Then we're going to shut it down. We're going to use a voluntary, not a mandatory model, and um, and we're going to beef up the treatment capacity rather than testing, and we're going to depend on public education and information 
to take care of the prevention aspect. That, in a nutshell, has been the strategy. So when people say that they didn't respond, that they, you know, it's not the same as the way in which, for example, Donald Trump didn't respond with the information that he had regarding the timing, with the resources that he had, which Mexico doesn't have, you know, there was a complete lack of responsibility, coherent strategy. Here it was uh, always clear from the very beginning we could lose, I mean, literally see as many people die of hunger as we do of coronavirus if we don't manage this properly. And so nobody knows yet whether they picked the right moment. They waited until it was March 23rd when uh, the schools were closed and when, the, and when the shutdown began. Again, it's voluntary for groups that are at risk. It's, it's, it's supposedly not voluntary, but there's still no enforcement measures. It's called a sanitary emergency. It's not called a state of exception or a state of emergency like you've seen in other places, which, it, which implies lifting, you know, a suspension of civil liberties. And this is both because of a human rights concern, but also because there are people who cannot stay home. They either don't have a home or they don't have proper conditions in the home or if they or they live from hand to mouth and if they stay home even for one day, they they don't have food to eat. So they had to take this into account. And again, we don't know if they made the right call yet or not. So far, it seems the numbers seem to be fine, but the numbers, as you know from the experiences all over the world, are are basically just an approximation of, of what the reality might be. But that calculation has always been very, very present in in terms of how they've gone about confronting the COVID-19 crisis. You were mentioning how business interests are going on TV and telling people to completely ignore all the voluntary safety protocols that AMLO is suggesting. Are you also seeing the same kind of business-sponsored protest at Capitals for people to be asking to go back to work as we are seeing here in the United States and unfortunately tomorrow here in Chicago? No, we're not. Uh, the people in general are aware that this is a real health crisis. Uh, there's fairly there's a high degree of um, acceptance of the government policies. They've opened up the, the communication in such a way that there's always been a press conference by the president every morning from Monday to Friday and in which there's a presentation on a certain issue and now it's often the pandemic and there's a question and answer period from the press. Those continue and then in addition to that, every single afternoon from 7 to 8 in the evening, there's a presentation by the chief epidemiologist uh, who describes what's happening on the world front with the virus, what's happening in Mexico, and focuses on a particular issue by inviting other government officials in to discuss it, which may be the impact on women, which may be uh, how how is the hospital system doing. So there's quite a lot of information out there. Some people believe it. Some people don't believe it. Some people believe it in part. Uh, there's been challenges to it. 
But in general, there's an acceptance of the measures and you do see frequent violations that they tend to have more to do with uh, people who have to go out and people who, who don't believe it. At the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism. And in some communities, I was talking to a friend who works with indigenous peoples, there continues to be some skepticism about how real the virus is and how necessary it is to follow the instructions. But overall, we're, we're seeing compliance uh, that will hopefully, you know, the goal of all the governments, you know, flatten that curve, which doesn't mean that you eliminate the cases, but that you avoid a saturation of the hospital system. Did that skepticism surprise you considering the swine flu outbreak of 2009 where Mexico was the epicenter? Does it surprise you that there would be any skepticism? And do you think that the response by Mexican society to COVID-19 was better because it had gone through the 2009 swine flu outbreak? Yeah, I think it definitely was. That taught people to respond and uh, that these kinds of outbreaks are real and are a real threat. There was a general sense that there was an overreaction to the swine flu outbreak in Mexico, and they were able from that experience to gauge uh, a little bit, have a little bit more information about that trade, I won't say trade-off because they're both necessary, but about that relationship between economic costs and health costs and, and where you come down in terms in terms of the policy. The skepticism really doesn't surprise me, and it seems to be primarily based on lack of information, particularly in communities that don't have that access to the nightly press conferences or to the same kinds of news sources. Um, indigenous communities where many people may be monolingual, they haven't had quite enough work done to translate some of these measures into indigenous languages. So um, so that's happening. And, and I do think also at the beginning, the attitude, the president's attitude before uh, there was a very firm decision made that now it was time to shut down and to, and to begin to take measures that the president's attitude at the beginning somewhat undermined in the minds of some people, particularly some of his followers. Uh, the later the uh, their ability to later fully assimilate the need to to take on these measures. On the front page of the New York Times today, there were all sorts of charts and graphs showing how in the United States, in many locales, the number of deaths are probably fifty percent higher than they mm -hmm. are being reported. I can imagine in a place like Mexico with so much poverty and then with the issues with having contact with indigenous Mexicans, it might be difficult to know exactly what the number of cases are. What fears do you have of cases being in deaths uh, due to COVID-19 being underreported, either due to poverty or racial disparities or any kind of shortcoming of the government or medical professionals to see and to go back and find out how many people have actually died from COVID-19? There's no doubt in my mind that they're underreported, and I don't think anybody would dispute that, really. Uh, they're underreported because people die at home. They're underreported because people aren't tested before, uh, before they die. 
they have now a category of suspected cases, both in the number of cases and in the number of deaths of people that they're either still waiting for results or or that are in the classic the classification of atypical pneumonias that could be assumed to be COVID-19 cases. Um, I don't think that that problem's ever really going to be resolved. At some point, we're going to have to do the same kind of exercise that was done in the New York Times, which is to basically take the, the baseline of, of deaths that are normal for this time of year and see how much, it, uh, how much above that we are, which is what they did. You know? So that, then you find out that if there, there's this huge spike in the number of deaths over what's normal, and yet they haven't been able to formally attribute it, them all to, to coronavirus, but that that spike in itself tells, tells a story that might be closer to the actual number of deaths. We're still at about less than 2,000, according to the official number. And again, they think that many will be added as they get test results in, not to mention the new cases that are coming in. So they don't expect that that number will be is representative even of the reality right now. Uh, but it's a pretty low number when you consider what the situation is in the United States. And while there's some reason to think that it, it's quite a bit higher, it's still it would be difficult to say that... Uh, um, that they're completely hiding a situation that's far different from what's being announced on a daily basis by the government. You posted on Twitter how Australia is now joining the U.S. in investigating China and their responsibility for the outbreak and how this has led to a surge of violence against Chinese Australians. Is Mexico, are Mexicans also blaming the Chinese blaming China for the outbreak, or are they blaming the United States for the outbreak because their neighbor to the north is the one that does have the most deaths, at least reported deaths, from COVID-19? Well, fortunately, the Mexican government is focusing on its own response to the crisis within the country and hasn't gotten deep into the blame game that's been a favorite of the Trump administration as he seeks to deflect criticism from his own administration. There's there's nothing to be gained from that. Obviously, epidemiologists have to analyze how where the virus started and how it spread. But yeah, the 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 idea of blaming other governments instead of responding to what needs to be done when so much needs to be done really is just a way of, of taking attention off of it. In Mexico, ironically, there hasn't been much blame either of the United States. And in fact, as you and the listeners know, it's been the reverse with absolutely no factual basis, that Donald Trump has used this tri this crisis, this pandemic, to uh, implicitly and at times ex explicitly uh, blame migrants, in addition to China, for the for the pandemic within the United States. He's completely shut down the asylum system, asylum being an international right, uh, that's that's guaranteed in treaties and, in fact, in U.S. laws, so that now thousands of people on the border who are awaiting their asylum hearings have to remain in Mexico, and they don't know what they're even waiting for because they're not carrying out asylum, asylum uh, hearings. In addition, there's the recent decision to no longer 
provide visas for workers with a number of exceptions, more exceptions than perhaps we expected at first when he tweeted it, but still with a number of exceptions uh, to no longer provide visas for immigrants coming to the United States, many of whom are seeking to join their families or to take jobs that they'd already been been offered by companies in the United States, with Trump saying that uh, not only could they possibly be a, a point of contagion, when we already know that there's local contagion, they're in mass contagion stage within the United States, they're not imported cases since many months ago, you know, but also that these would be this would be unfair competition for for scarce jobs within the United States. We also already know that migrants who come to the United States are taking jobs that other people don't want, that industries mm -hmm. need, and um, and they're human beings that have a right to mobility and have a right to employment. So the the way that Trump has blamed Mexico, in a sense, and Mexicans and other immigrants for the coronavirus is just another example of that blame game. And in, in Mexico, it's seen, you know, with, with, with disbelief, again, because of what you mentioned, that the, the coronavirus is much stronger in the United States. And in fact, many of the Mexican cases, at least originally, came from there. So do you think that that blame game by Trump, blaming immigration, blaming Mexican migrants, what impact do you think that is going to have on the American food supply this summer? Well, they're, what they're trying to do right now is, uh, is they're trying to maintain, and we may possibly see an expansion of that guest worker program, but it will still have an impact, and you're already seeing, as harvest season begins, you're already seeing problems with labor force to harvest basic foods in the United States. Again, there's a huge contradiction in what's happened here, because in the United States, these agricultural workers, whether they're undocumented workers, a huge percentage of the people who harvest food in the United States, or members of the H-2A guest worker program, which reached 250,000 last year and has been growing even under the Trump administration, they were declared essential workers because of the need to harvest the food. And at the same time, Trump is trying to reduce their salaries, saying that he has to help out the landowners. So it's this goes back to one of the questions that you asked about that had to do with the, the uh, the reform agenda in Mexico, which has been slower than some people assumed and maybe not as deeply anti-capitalist, certainly not as deeply anti-capitalist as some people had thought originally. But I say that because if we don't go about, re re well, one of the most important things in confronting this crisis in Mexico and in any country has to do with making precisely those types of reforms, which is to say in Mexico, it's actually advanced the reform program in some senses because what the president has had to do is reorient resources, resources to expanding the same kinds of redistributive to the poor social programs that he started out his administration with because the whole idea was to create less vulnerability and more equality 
between the poor and the traditionally privileged classes. So he has gone after tax evasion among the companies, but said he will not we, he will not um, carry out a fiscal reform that creates higher taxes because he also doesn't want to like open up a flank of open warfare with the most powerful economic interests in the countries. He has uh, increased the pensions to the elderly, one of his signature programs in terms of the social programs, also to um, grants for uh, small agricultural producers, price supports for small agricultural producers, uh, grants for, for youth, uh, for their first, for jobs and for education. These programs that were already in place are being expanded and the programs that would create more access to health care, of course, are being expanded. So in the many ways, the crisis itself is moving the society in the direction in which the president wanted to see it go anyway. Now the big problem, the big challenge is how to get the resources to do that, because you've got to take into account, too, not only do we have the economy frozen up. There was a 2.4 drop in the first quarter earnings, and that's not to say what's going to happen in the second quarter. They're already anticipating about a 7% drop in the economy for this year in Mexico. But we also have the price of oil that's completely, it was down to zero, you know, for a while there. So Mexico is, is in a very, very difficult situation economically and the idea is to come out of it by moving forward with some of those reforms instead of having to roll them back. We have been speaking with journalist Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. You can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura Carlson, that's S-E-N, followed by the letter C, Laura Carlson C. And you can find more of Laura's work at Americas.org. You can find many of our discussions that we've had with Laura at our website, thisishell.com. Just search on her last name. Again, Carl Sen with an E, Carl S-E-N. And I just want to point out one thing before we let Laura go. Laura's writing prior to the virus on Honduras, an interview that you had, I believe, with Manuel Zelaya. Uh, the violence against women writing that you were doing was absolutely horrible, but fascinating and incredible writing and uh, the writing on the, oh, mili- the the military coup in Bolivia and how the Organization of American States had absolutely no evidence that there was any corruption within that election. So you got to go mm-hmm. read all of Laura's amazing writing pre-coronavirus. She writes about stuff that isn't the coronavirus. So Laura, thank you so much for being back on our show. And I promise you, we'll have you on again this year. It's not going to be again two years before we have you on again. Well, yeah, I hope so. (laughs) That'd be great. And I do want to say just before I go that a lot of the work lately has been focused on the impact of women here in Mexico and in general. Uh, We're already seeing an increase in in violence against women as they've anticipated throughout the country and uh, a kind of insufficient response on the part of the the government when they say the family is going to be our unit of resistance here without recognizing that 40% of femicides in Mexico anyway take place within the home, that it's not necessarily a safe place for women and that we have to figure out 
alternatives when people are forced to be sheltering and recognize that some people are sheltering with abusers. Follow Laura on Twitter. I'm telling you, it is worth it. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I really miss having you on the show, and it's great to hear your voice again. Me too. Talk to you again soon. All right, see you. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast. Happens every Friday at patreon.com slash thisishell at 10 a.m., And then it's podcasts later on in the day. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who subscribe in a moment, as well as have a moment of truth. We'll remind you of this week's Hangover Cure. Thank everyone who is on this week's show and share with you what's happening on the show next week. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares the final part of The Good Doctor, his four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question mail is... What household item are you putting in your body to fight the coronavirus? What household item are you putting in your body to fight COVID-19? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can still tweet it to us. You can still email it to us. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What household item are you putting in your body to fight or cure COVID-19. Nick A says beer. John T says the Putin putter. I don't know. Richard M says prolonged exposure to existential existential dread. Gardell says tinfoil, less sweaty when it's on the inside. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> Do you know that uh, when people wanted to avoid being drafted in Vietnam, you'd take a ball of tinfoil and you'd swallow it? And then it shows up as an ulcer in your x-ray. Oh, damn. That's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, getting it out. I, got, I, I know a whole bunch of ways you can get out of the draft, just in case you're curious. Let's save that for Patreon. <laughs> uh, JC says, oiling my whole body up with vegetable oil so the virus can't stick to me. <laughs> Thomas H. says, Betamax. The old flesh is <laughs> dead. Long live the new flesh. Adam C. says, I'm doing an isopropyl enema every night. I feel great. What do you get isopropyl? I can't find it anywhere. My bong is a mess. Oh, I got some of you. Trevor M. says, maybe, maybe talk to Adam C., actually. Uh, Trevor M. says, pure, unpolluted crude oil. Fabio L. says, drinking lots of dihydrogen monoxide. Mm. Lauren L. says, tampons, one in each nostril. <laughs> what are you putting in your body? What household item are you putting in your body to cure COVID-19? Andrew P. says, bourbon. Luke H. says, brondo. Fritz, Fritz K. says, Lysol. Justin H. says, huffing chlorine cleans the lungs. Pete V says plutonium. Josh J says sin. <laughs> Joanna B says kryptonite. Nom de G says Kerrygold salted butter. Just everywhere. People are really getting to the lipids over here. Uh, Steve C says earbuds. Wireless, of course. Dan O says toilet paper because I'm a baller. Lisa C says grape knee high. Okay. Kevin H says Smirnoff and strychnine. <laughs> Stephen S, nine millimeter bullets. I hear this is a war. Jake H says oxyclean. Uh, Pete D says, birdseed. Seen any dead birds during quarantine? Nope. <laughs> Dennis H says, whiskey. What the hell? Pammy H says, I get my immune system drunk every night, so it will fight anything. Casey C says, LSD. The toaster tells me that I'll be fine. <laughs> what household item are you putting in your body to cure COVID-19? Owen JG says, a blue pill so I can escape to sweet virtuality. <laughs> Wally R says, just to piss off the Trumpists, I'm ingesting Fabuloso. <laughs> That's a good one. 
And uh, we'll get two more. You can either go through those or I can get Jeff on the line. Uh, let's save those for next time uh, for after Jeff. On Patreon tomorrow, May Day, May 1st, 2020, we are playing an interview from our show on May Day 2010, 10 years earlier, when we were still only doing the show once a week for four straight, commercial-free, completely uninterrupted hours on Saturday mornings. I still can't believe I survived doing that for 23 grueling years. However, I don't know what's going to be on the... Patreon podcast tomorrow because I don't know it was on the show on May 1st 2010 but Alex does so Alex why don't you play the intro to our May 1st show from 2010 so we can decide which interview we will be playing on tomorrow's show investigative journalist Aram Rostin tells us uh, what's fueling the Afghan war author Paul Street looks at the Tea Party and wonders what populist uprising reporter Gretchen Peters explains how drugs, thugs and crime are reshaping the Afghan war family farmer and Goldman Prize winner Lynn Henning you know, I put at the website and I put in the announcement, uh, that I, the email announcement that we send out, uh, that uh, her name was Herring, and I apologize. <laughs> it's family, farmer, and Goldman Prize winner Lynn Henning describes the egregious polluting practices of livestock factory farms. And historian Alfred McCoy dissects America and the dictators and asks, can anyone pacify the world's number one narco state, that being Afghanistan? Danny Muller gives us a wasted energy report the Hop Leafs, Michael Roper talks beer. Jeff Dorchin delivers a moment of truth. If you have any questions for our guests, suggestions for future guests. Yeah, I got a question. How the hell did you get all those segments in one four-hour show? That's like seven different things. Jesus Christ, we must have gone over. All right, so it's Ian Rostin on the Afghan war, or Gretchen Peters on the drug war, as- or the drug aspect of it. Lynn Henning on environmentalism. Paul Street talking about how uh, the... Uh, Tea Party was not a grassroots outfit, and Alfred McCoy also on the Afghan war. Let's, because it's most the most timely thing because of what's happening at state protests. Let's go with Paul Street, even though I think that the other, some of the other interviews may be actually better interviews. They're just not as timely, and we do have to get to that Lynn Henning one because it is a fascinating story. So let's go with Paul Street for tomorrow. I'm not quite sure what I will be talking about during my new monologue on tomorrow's live streaming Patreon show, which will be podcast immediately after that live stream happening at 10 a.m. Chicago time. That's Central Daylight Savings Time, but we will be discussing from our May Day 2010 show conversation we had with, uh, we'll be having a conversation with Paul Street, and that was all about the founding and the origins of the Tea Party. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways that you can help out This Is Hell, including all of our merch. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin shares the final part of The Good Doctor, his four-part fictional expose on a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. We'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Announce our favorite and the winner of this week's prize, and we'll find out from Alex, who's on next week's show. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was, Hi, this is hell. My guess is you already have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Good Doctor, Final Dose. 
Welcome to the moment of truth and the conclusion of the four-part semi-fictional expose of one doctor's degradation from healer to heel. Fame was taking our odd couple for a lovely jaunt. Dr. Dave made guest appearances on sitcoms, and Mel was jobbed into a number of cable network talent exhibits. About the time Mel started doing the Big Balls show on MTV, alongside fellow thinly disguised fictional stand-up Kimmy Jimmel, he began adopting a definitively right-wing stance on issues about which he had no business opining. What is it about the Middle East that causes people to be violent, do you think? Is it something in the soil? Is it? No, it's uh, 200 years of oppression by the West. That's what the liberal, the politically, is it the hummus, the baba ganoush, the crappy music? What is it? Well, what are you implying, Mel and Dave? Is it just that dark people on the other side of the world have more violence in their blood or genes? Is it their religion, their swarthiness? Middle East experts and armchair scholars alike knew that the region had been carved to pieces and raped by the colonizing powers, and the CIA had, as recently as 1953, overthrown the elected Mossadegh government in Iran to install the Shah, and were, even as Dave and Mel were disparaging knowledge, continuing their manipulations of peoples, their propping up of dictators, and facilitating when not outright committing, the murders of political leaders in the region. The West was not an innocent observer. Radios could be heard across the nation being smashed in fury. This was no longer a hip sex advice show slipping common sense abstinence, monogamy, condom wearing, and heterosexual leaning advice under the radar. This was a couple of media figures peddling naked right-wing racist and corporatist propaganda. That's how... Dr. Dave finally found his ideological home in the Fox News milieu. He tried to make it as an actor. No one knows why. I guess he figured if a right-wing toady like Ben Stein could do it, so could he. But someone who's handsome because there's nothing wrong with him isn't a particularly memorable face. Safer to build on his brand as the new, less repulsive Dr. Laura, not fictional. Why keep up the pretense? And that's exactly what he did. And so it's no accident that he made the mistake of parroting Donald Trump's dismissal of COVID-19 as no worse or more alarming than the common flu. He has since apologized for joining the chorus of Fox News Trump-licking talking heads who mocked the precautions urged by every reputable medical professional and institution outside that echo chamber. I don't accept Dr. Dave's apology, and neither should anyone else. He started his career as something of a public servant, but he developed into one of those who masquerade as public servants while contriving to serve only themselves. In the process, it's fair to conjecture that the deaths he is responsible for are innumerable, and his smug blather downplaying the seriousness of the COVID-19 pandemic, joining in on the wrong side of medical history, will and should haunt him until he dies, choking on his truffle oil-laced, hormone-free sushi. Was it the lure of fame and all its trappings that brought him to this ignoble pass? Probably. Can we blame capitalism? 
I mean, many of us are blaming capitalism for a host of societal deficiencies, the inability of our national anti-community ethos to cope with the collective needs imposing themselves due to the current pandemic, not the least of them. How much blame can one economic system bear? Systemic oppression, global violence, environmental degradation, of course these can be laid at the feet of dollar worship, but personal, moral, and ethical failures. A man starts out treating people's addiction for little or no compensation. He garners some attention, then starts to pick up a little change, doing a radio gig. He leaves his unprofitable practice to seek his personal fortune. Is it really connected to the pressure to earn more and more money, first just to stay alive, and then to maintain the buffer of wealth that is the only thing standing between sparkling celebrity and the life-and-death struggle of regular people. Look at the fate of the medical workers in the ICUs across our nation, exposing themselves to a highly contagious and often lethal disease, unprotected because of shortages due to our president's incompetence, as well as our governing indoctrinated faith in the free market. These workers are freely on the market. And the market has offered them this opportunity with its risks outweighing its rewards. Many of them have a calling to help the sick. And the market takes advantage of their good-hearted naivete. Some of them are just trying to survive economically with the only marketable skill they possess. Can anyone blame Dr. Dave for setting himself a safer, more remunerative course? Not if we blame capitalism, but would the good doctor himself blame capitalism? He might, if only in the barely conscious part of his brain. Or he might simply admit outright, I didn't want to be poor. It's dangerous to your health. Who can argue with that? As the owners of the means of wealth conjuring grow ever more concerned that the lesser classes aren't doing enough to keep their numbers up, we're being bombarded by more and more cleverly disguised voices of reason assuring us that the death toll of the virus isn't worth the economic grief of protecting ourselves from it. Well, not exactly cleverly disguised. Steve Forbes, the genetically meritorious billionaire, recently posted on Twitter, This pandemic is over. Let's stop this economic suicide and get back to work. Not sure what he's talking about. I mean, what work is he talking about? Maybe his laborious job listening to the jingle of his millions rolling in? Oh, I get it. He wants to go back to work as an unaccredited epidemiologist. Sure, Steve, you get back to work doing your thing. A tad more subtly, two weeks ago, a couple of Bakersfield doctors who run a for-profit practice that I guess must be leaking revenue held a news conference publicized by libertarian funding organizations during which they touted a mangled statistical method for determining that COVID-19 was no more deadly than the flu, exactly the false claim our fictional Dr. Dave and his factual counterpart Dr. Drew finally had to apologize for. The Bakersfield propaganda show was taken down by YouTube after an onslaught of complaints by competent experts, but not before racking up 5 million views. The two discredited but somehow still practicing physicians are doctors Dan Erickson and Artin Masihi. They are to be considered dangerous and shot on sight. Uh, I mean, they ought to be ashamed of themselves. Elon Musk thought they were brilliant. Elon and Forbes should get together for a makeout session. Seems it doesn't matter what profession you choose. 
be it pseudo-doctor like Dr. Phil or Dr. Forbes, or realish doctor like Drs. Oz and Drew, or fictional ones like Dr. Dave. If there's a buck to be made by siding with unscrupulous fascists, there will always be those willing to sell their ethics, if not their souls. It's a story as old as the oldest profession. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! Oh, Jeffy. Always lovely to hear your voice. Very good moment of truth. I really enjoyed the entire four-part expose of a fictional doctor who I think is quite a lot like Dr. Drew when I think Dr. about this. Drew. You know what? They, they're all kind of the same. Oh, that's not how that works. Not, a lot of, not all of them pair up with a clown. That's, uh, that's true. Like it, Jerry Lewis didn't, didn't pair up with Marcus Welby or... <laughs> Whatever, whatever doctor was around. Quite a reference there, my friend. Doctor Kildare and Dean Martin. <laughs> all right, Jeffy. Until next time. Hey, oh, I know how they fit all those, uh, all those episodes, all those um, segments into one episode. How's that? Well, you didn't give a monologue every hour. No, that's true. That's a good <laughs> point. But also. I really want some racist guacamole. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will have that FedEx to you, so expect that in the mail. Thank you. I just got a moon pie in the mail. Excuse me? Do I you got know a the moon sec- pie in the mail. The secret ingredient is RC. Oh, I thought it was Pepsi-Cola. No, it's Royal Crown, man. It's very oh, simple. All right, Jeffy. Till next time. All right. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, this week's question mail is, what household item are you putting in yourself to fight the coronavirus? What household item are you putting in yourself to fight the coronavirus? The person with our favorite answer wins 10. This is Health Subvertising Stickers. You can leave your answers still for the next eight seconds over at Facebook, on Twitter, or email it to us. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from Hell? Yeah, I got four more. Uh, what household item are you putting in your body to fight COVID-19? Greg D says, quesadillas. Eric T. says, mindless television. Austin R.M. says, local honey. And Andrew S. says, ripping fat lines of Ajax. Really clears out the old sinuses. That's disgusting. That is disgusting. I snorted speed once. It was the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Oh, God. That kind of granules that go in your in blood like oh, Awful. My answer to this week's question, Mel, is... Well, the question, Mel, of course, was what household item are you putting in yourself to fight the coronavirus? I've got kind of a boring answer, but it's the truth. Home cooking. We have not had any, had any uh, food delivered. We haven't picked up any food since the virus started. We may this weekend. We both have cravings for Vietnamese food. And if you're going to go to the trouble of ordering food, you might as well order something you cannot make. And there's no freaking way I'm going to try to figure out how to make spring rolls. That makes this week's winner. Uh, Alex, you got any suggestions on who should win? I've got a couple. Uh, let's hear yours. I like Casey saying uh, LSD because the toaster tells me I'll be fine. I thought that was good. I did like uh, Wally's uh, just to piss off Trump as I'm ingesting Fabuloso. And uh, I don't know if you I can't remember if you read this one or not. Pammy Hammy saying I, I get my immune system drunk every night, so it will fight anything. Oh, yeah, yeah, we read that. <laughs> okay. Any, uh, what, any others? I was a fan of like? Ben H. saying tap water from Flint. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good one. All right, for the Flint reference, Ben H., is that who it is? Yep, congrats, Ben H. Ben H., you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell. You will be receiving 10 subvertising stickers. All you have to do is message us your mailing address via Facebook. Uh, let's see, Alex, who's on the show next week starting with Monday and just go through the whole week? 
All right, on uh, Monday, we're going to be talking with Matt and Maria from Woodbine, a volunteer-run experimental hub in Ridgewood, Queens, for developing the practices, skills, and tools needed to build autonomy. So they're going to be talking about mutual aid disaster relief type things happening in New York City. And then that's on Monday. They contacted us. We were really excited about having them on the show. Yep. And on Mon- uh, Tuesday, Ariella Aisha Azule will be on to talk about her Verso book, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. <laughs> Good luck with that. And uh, Wednesday, Erin Hatton will be on to talk about her new book, Work Under Threat, or sorry, Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. And Thursday, I don't know, yeah, we're still working on uh, our series of COVID reports around the world, so um, hopefully someone in Latin America. Yeah, maybe Lucas Kerner in Mexico, or in uh, Venezuela, but we're not. He is actually not in Venezuela now because of the, uh, uh, because of quarantine, he is in Santiago de Chile. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm in touch with him, so we're trying to work something out. And, of course, on Thursday, we'll have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Thanks to this week's guest, Vijay Kolonjavadi, author of the article, This Pandemic is Ecological Breakdown, which originally appeared in Al Jazeera, and you can now find it in a long-form virgin, virgin, version at Uneven Earth. That's unevenearth.org. And you can find Vijay on Twitter at Kolonjavadi, K-O-L-I-N-J-I-V-A-D-I. We also appreciate the return to our show of political sociologist Dilar Derek, an activist of the Kurdish women's movement in Europe and a contributing contributor to a book we featured on last week's show, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy, which we discussed with the editor of that collection, who is also a contributing writer, Cindy Milstein. Dilar's essay is entitled, Only With You This Broom Will Fly, Java, magic, and sweeping away the state inside of us. Dilar was last on our show back in 2015, and you can find that interview on Rojava at our website, thisishell.com. Follow Dilar on Twitter at DLRDRK1. We are also very fu- fortunate to have the return of Ibram X. Kendi on our show. He was on to discuss his Atlantic Magazine article, Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of the Coronavirus. You can find our interviews with uh, <clears throat> Ibram from the past at our website as well. This is hell.com. He was on our show to talk about his National Book Award-winning uh, award-winning book, obviously, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America and How to Be an Anti-Racist. Again, you can find both of those interviews at our website, This is hell.com. You can find out more about Ibram at ibramxkendi.com. And finally, thanks to today's guest, journalist Laura Carlson, who you can follow on Twitter at Laura Carlson, followed by the letter C, at Laura Carlson C, and you can find all of Laura's work at Americas.org. This week's hangover cure is a banana bag, or also known as a rally pack, filled with IV fluids containing vitamins and minerals. The solution has a yellow color, hence the term banana bag. Talk to you tomorrow on May Day on Patreon. We will be playing an interview from 10 years earlier, May Day 2010, with Paul Street on the origins of the Tea Party. I hope to see all of you sometime in the future at This Is Hell office hours. That way we'll all finally be together again and enjoy our lives when this freaking nightmare is over. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. As always, we could not do the show without Alex, without Jeff, without Ronaldo, without Theron, and thanks again to Laura Carlson for being on our show today. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. 
my demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.